You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day, and thank thank you for the reminder, even through such so humorous means, about the fact that in so many ways the Old Testament leaves us open-ended with the desire for, for the king that we so badly and desperately need. And in your son, you stooped low to come into the world and to redeem us and then to establish your kingdom and to give us a deep sense of hope that you will make all things new in time. And so, Father, I pray for us as we begin a new series today in this class that you'll help the teacher and those who are here to listen that together, Lord, you will you will open our hearts and our minds to understand what it is that you'd have to say to us um, in the truth of your word. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to everybody. We're starting today a, um, well, let me count, a seven-week series. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, you can decide today whether or not you want to come back. And no, no, I mean, no, no feelings are involved. It's fine. Um, and, and this, I want to give you a sense of what, what I hope my schedule will be. And, I, and I'm going to try very hard to stick to this. Um, so today, to so give you a sense of the scope and sequence of what we'll do together, today we're going to do an introduction to the significance of God revealing Himself in His name. Uh, what does that mean that God has told us who He is and identified Himself? This is very important, actually. Next week, we're going to give ourselves specifically to the name um, Elohim. I will talk a little bit about that name today, but that's the name in the Old Testament that we have translated more often than not as G-O-D. God, right, Elohim. Um, I'm going to give two weeks uh, to the name, and, I'll, and I'm going to come back to this name. So let me write it up here. Um, this is... That's... Elohim, right? That goes that way. Uh, and then the other one that we're going to spend two weeks on... Is uh, Yahweh uh, or <laughs> Yahweh or Jehovah? I'm actually okay with all of those. This is a matter of some contention, um, and, and just to prepare you for our discussion when we get to this name, that 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 those four letters, and that's why it's called the Tetragrammaton. Four letters. Those four letters are viewed as holy. Um, and again, this, I don't mean this, I'm not putting this on anybody. This is not a conscience load bearing thing. But we don't like our kids to say, oh my God. Right? We, we just, we, they do it. And we are always like, don't do that. You know? Um, but when the commandment in the Ten Commandments says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that, that commandment is primarily about this, right? The Tetragrammaton. That, that's the name that's unique to God's own self-giving in the Old Testament. So, like if my kids were saying, oh my, you know, Tetragrammaton, that'd be even worse, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, uh, so, Yahweh here, this name, um, which is at least in the Old Testament tradition, and even to this day, within Jewish circles, say rabbinic circles, 
This name, whenever you would come to it in the Hebrew text, you're reading along, tetragrammaton. If you're vocalizing this out loud, you're going to say this out loud. Adonai. Um, or, if you remember from one of the scenes in uh, The Passion by Mel Gibson, if you know, all that was in Aramaic and Latin, when the Romans were speaking it was Latin, Aramaic when the Jews were speaking, every once in a while you would hear them say something like Hashem, which means the name. So they would actually say the name in place of the Tetragrammaton. And the reason why I'm okay with Jehovah is, or any of these, is we, we don't know how to say this name. Out of such reverence over time, the actual phonation of those four letters has been lost to us. And so there is a kind of scholarly idea that these are better scholarly options. I don't really think so. We just don't know. Um, do you know why we do Jehovah? How this got sort of built around in the English uh, Bible system and even in sort of English spiritual language? They, they took the vowels from that, Adonai, and slapped them on that. And that's why we have Jehovah, right? So it's a, and we'll come back to all this. Um, but next week, I'm going to talk about Elohim. I'll talk a little bit about more, more about Elohim today. And then the following two weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time on the Tetragrammaton because that, that's the name. I mean, when we think about, for example, Philippians chapter 2, and he handed over to Jesus the name which is above every name. Or Jesus in the high priestly prayer, John 17, saying, I made known your name to them. That has to do with a very particular feature of that tetragrammaton there, which is a name that God gives to his people in, in, the, in the relationship to them. All right. Now, uh, after that, we're going to spend a Sunday um, on El Shaddai, El Elyon, and then all the other descriptive terms that we have like Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide um, the uh, Jehovah Roy. The Lord will see to it. That comes from the story with Hagar and Ishmael. Um, we'll get to some of those on that day. On the 13th of October, we're going to do a, a whole day on Jesus Christ and what that name signifies. And then our last Sunday together, we will have time to look at the significance of God's self-giving of his name as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, 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 that Trinitarian uh, characterization of his name. So I, I mean, I'll just go tell you, I'm giddy about that. This is going to be fun. I'm, I'm very excited. And if it's just three of us, that's okay too. I'm going to have a great, this is going to be, this is going to be a rip-roaring good time, right? But that's the, that's the idea of what we'll, of what we'll do um, in, in the course, okay? Now today though, we're talking about an, an introduction to the, to the, to the whole notion of what it means for God to name himself. And there's a lot to think about here. Um, and you, many of you have heard me talk about this before, but I, I, it's, it's important to sort of lay some groundwork on this again as we enter into this journey together over these next seven weeks. Um, John Calvin, who again I have some you know, affinities for, John Calvin uh, famously said at the beginning of his institutes that really the, the, the standard uh, metaphysical question, that is the question of how we understand reality itself and our, and our engagement and understanding of it, centers around two basic defining questions of what it means to be. Now, we'll think of this in particular ways about being a Christian. We will talk in those terms. But I think Calvin is actually thinking much broader than just what it means to be a Christian. He's saying what it actually means to be, you know, that we exist. 
And here are the two questions that Calvin thinks are central to any understanding of reality. Number one, knowing who God is. And number two, knowing who we are. Knowledge of God and knowledge of the self. And interestingly enough, Calvin discusses these two facets of what it means to to actually be as um, flip sides of the same coin. In other words, you can't have the one without the other. Knowledge of God demands for us to have an understanding of what it means to be a human. And an understanding of what it means to be genuinely human demands for us to engage that larger theological question, what does it mean for God to be God? Knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And that might sound really kind of nice and clean on the surface presentation of these things. But the question that's kind of behind that is how in the world do we even know? How do we come to that place where knowledge can actually be had so that we can say that now we actually are apprehending something and understanding something that corresponds to how things really are? And this, is, this, by the way, is the question of modernity. i got a guy who teaches this for a living. I'm sorry about that. But this, this, this is the question of modernity. How do we know that what we know is true. How do we know that? Uh, can, can I get real geeky with you for a second? All right. no, if, we, if we haven't already been. Um, uh, so, you know, Rene Descartes, right? Um, comes around 17th century. He tells us in his meditations on the first philosophy that he's sitting by a stove in some um, cabin somewhere thinking about reality and and he's, he's by a fire, and all of a sudden it dawns on him that he knows that he's having this experience of being near a fire, right? Um, and, uh, and then he goes on to speculate, as philosophers are wont to do, and why all of you hope none of your children major in philosophy. I understand this. Um, he begins to sort of speculate. Well, how do I know that my experience and my knowledge of my experience of this fire right here corresponds to how things really are? In other words, I know that I'm perceiving this. I mean, I mean, I know that I'm feeling this. I know that I can see the fire. I can hear the crackling. But how do I know that my experience is real? And, and this is why you really hope your children don't major in it. He goes on to say, how do I know that I'm not dreaming? How do I know that my, my encounter with this thing is actually the thing itself? And then he goes on famously to say, we don't really don't know. The only thing that we do know is that we're thinking about it. But there's not really any necessity that it does correspond to the thing itself. So the the, the, the big fancy term on this is epistemology, like the, the, the theory of how we know and how knowledge comes to be. And that is a very basic question of human existence. And it's the question that perplexes philosophers to this day. People debate about this to this day. Now, by the way, 20th century, the big philosophical debates on, on a philosophy of language. What does it mean for language to witness to things that are beyond the language itself? So now philosophy of language has taken over some of these sort of more Cartesian things from the past. And here we are. How do we know things? And that's where this series hopes to sort of put some tent pegs in the ground to think theologically out loud about how it is that we can say that our knowledge of God is real and that it corresponds to who God actually is in God's own Self-giving. So let's talk a little bit um, in Christian theological terms about how Christians come to know and, and really how humanity comes to know. 
And the answer that's been given to that is the, is a term that all of us know. It's the term revelation, right? Revealed knowledge. We believe this is important. And this is not, by the way, to the dismissal of the incredible things that the human mind can accomplish. I mean, incredible things that the human mind can accomplish. Um, I was having a conversation with one of my children the other day about, because he's thinking about some of these things, about um, MIT philosopher, who I think just wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. Frank Wilczek is his name. Teaches, teaches philosophy at MIT. I mean, teaches physics, physics at MIT. Wrote this incredible book called The, the Question of God. And in this, as, a, as a, uh, a sort of quantum physicist, he's done all this work to say that if God does exist, and he says, I don't know if he does, but if he does, on the most basic atomic molecular structure of reality, he must be an artist because there's no way other to describe this than beauty. It's aesthetically pleasing and beautiful. Um, and, I, I, and, and it doesn't mean necessarily that this man is a Christian, and I'm, we can we talk about that later, but his ability to engage the material world and to see the material world from all of its facets and the beauty both on the macro, but more, I think interestingly, on that micro level, that aesthetics is built into the very fabric of our universe is like, it's, wow. I mean, it's amazing what the human mind uh, can achieve. And that, and that category, by the way, is a category that Christian theologians have often defined as general revelation. That God has left an imprint of himself. And we can do this stuff was debated. I, I know so, but God has left an imprint of himself in the created order that witnesses Romans chapter one to God's existence, his power, and his glory. Um, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and lay my cards out on the table. I've, I've, I went through a sort of long period of time when I had less than zero interest in general revelation. I'll explain why in a second. Um, and I'll, I'll, just so I don't bear the lead, general, general revelation is going to save no one. That, that's, that's where I'm going. It's going to redeem nobody. Um, so I'm, I'm not taking away from its achievement, but general revelation doesn't lead anybody on its own accord and according to its own logic to Jesus. Um, so it's, it's incredible. It's beautiful. For a long period of time, I had less than zero interest in it. And I'm coming around. All right, I'm coming around. Um, because actually, it, there is something powerfully beautiful about the experience of God's transcendence that's actually reflected in our material world and our experience of it. Um, I'll commend a book to you that you won't agree with from beginning to end, but it's stimulating nonetheless by an Eastern Orthodox theologian, David Bentley Hart, who may be the smartest and meanest guy on the earth right now. He's not a nice person. I'll just go and say that on record. But he's brilliant. And he's written a book entitled The Experience of God. It's out with Yale University Press. And the subtitle is Bliss, Goodness, and Beauty. And what he says is sort of built within basically the religious systems of most religious outlooks around the world is that the human being, human beings and their experience of bliss. Um, what would be a good example of this? Those moments of transcendence when you are before something that's so aesthetically pleasing that you realize that you've lost kind of track of where you are. Have you had that happen to you before? More often than not, and the philosopher would say this as well, more often than not, that's with music. Um, a musical moment where the transcendent, the transcendent bliss is so palpably powerful that you realize that it's, I'm, I'm, I'm tasting something that's way beyond the normal warp and woof of material existence. 
um, and beauty, aesthetics, goodness, what it means to be good. And of course, David Bentley Hart is working from, for lack of a better term, a kind of platonic worldview where all of reality participates in the being of God. I'm not, I, I still have my reservations about that, but I commend it to you. I think it's very interesting. And I think it's a great way to be able to make forays, frankly, into talking to people about the faith. I mean, these experiences, even from kind of an evolutionary standpoint, from an, evo- from an evolutionary standpoint, there's, there's no reason why we want to go to an art gallery. That's, that's not built into the survival of our species, that we like art. Why do we do that? I mean, these are great forays to have conversations that science can do what science can do. Science can observe the material world and make assessments about what that material world is doing. But science can't answer metaphysical questions. They can't answer questions about ultimate being and the source of reality. It can't, just, that's not within its purview. So this is a great way, I think, to kind of move into conversations with people about, about the faith. Um, but, and, and by the way, that's what we're going to talk about next week primarily with this name, Elohim. And just to give you a little sense of where I'll go next week with this, I, I think it's fascinating that in the Old Testament you will often have Elohim used as a predicate or a descriptor of Israel's God, while that God pertains to the whole of the material world. Not just the particular relationship with Israel, but the whole of the material world. There's a reason, I think, why Genesis 1.1 says, you ready for this? In the beginning, Bereshit, bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created, Elohim created. Uh, and then when we get to the second creation account in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to have that from the hand of Tetragrammaton, Jehovah, Yahweh. The fact that the first creation account gives us the name Elohim, the significance of that to my mind is to give you a sense that Israel's creator God is not just a parochial God of Israel as a nation, but this is the God who made the heavens and the earth. Um, Jonah chapter 1, I love that. We'll talk about this next week too. But Jonah chapter 1, all the sailors, I mean, this is bad news. And all the sailors, they know that Poseidon or Neptune or whoever this is that's going after us is really upset. So everybody better get up and start calling after their gods. Elohim, plural. We'll talk about that next week too. And then by the end of Jonah chapter 1, we have all those polytheists who are calling out on their gods to redeem them in this moment have now recognized Jonah's God as the God who made the heavens and the earth and they're making sacrifices and offering vows to Tetragrammaton uh, Jehovah. It's, this is fun stuff, right? So Elohim and the naming of God as Elohim in the Old Testament I do believe attests to this powerful reality of general revelation. That God has left an imprint of His very self in the creation that He has given us in this material world and our, our experience of it. But, and again, this is, I think, the larger point, but with the Reformation tradition that I think most of us kind of identify with, maybe not all, we recognize that special revelation left on its own is not salvific or redeeming. And, and this is the part that might rub some of you wrong, and I understand why it would. I really do. But the part that might rub some of you wrong is within sort of classic Reformation theology, the end result of special revelation is to leave people culpable. To leave you sort of morally culpable before the reality of God's power and glory that's been attested in the created world, yet we've still, we've still resisted Him in His offer to us in the gospel. So this, this is, this is a challenging subject matter. I, I admit that to you. 
But I think the larger point is there is an, if I can put it this way, an infinite gap between a recognition of some sort of theistic being that gives sense to, to the material world around us or provides for us some understanding of what it means to be. There's, there's an infinite gap between that and a recognition of Father, Son, Holy Spirit who's redeeming us in the person of the Son for the sake of the new create heavens and the new earth. What Christian orthodoxy, right? So what's special revelation? Special revelation is not an empirical science. There's no intellectual building blocks to come to terms with what God is and how God wants to be known. How does God give himself to be known? Here's a verse that I want you to think about. Can I read this to you? Um, Psalm 77, which at least for a few months has been my favorite psalm. I, I love this one. Psalm 77, verse 19. I love this. Thy way was through the sea. Speaking about the Red Sea event. Thy path through the great waters. Yet thy footprints were unseen. i read it again. Thy way was through the sea. Thy path was through the great waters. In other words, we saw the effects of what you did. But no one could see your footprints. He, he was not objectifiable. Not something to be grasped. Even in his activity, his sub, not something we could grasp and hold on to uh, on our own. And I think this is what Calvin's getting after when he says that humanity left to itself is perpetually on some sort of idol-making activity. Um, and what I think Calvin means by that is if left to our own religious devices with general revelation alone, if we were left to that alone, our instinct as fallen human beings would be to make a God after our own image. That's what we would want to do because that's somewhat controllable. That's objectifiable. That's something that we can get our hands around and our minds around because really it's the product of our own intellect and imagination. I think I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago in this class. Great turn of phrase there in the golden calf episode, right? Um, who did they understand the golden calf to be? The one that redeemed them out of Egypt. In other words, it wasn't a denial that Yahweh was the one who did that for them. But it was now we need to have something objectifiable, something animate, that we can have some sort of control over that deity who, who um, delivered us in the Red Sea. And what does the psalmist say here? We saw him split the water. We saw him do the mighty acts that he did, but no one could see his footprints. That, that wasn't something that we, could get, that we could get a hold of. So what does knowledge of God entail? What does knowledge of God as God gives himself to be known? What's requisite for us to come to some understanding of who God is? I'll give you three things. Number one, knowledge of God entails a reverential bond of trust. A reverential bond of trust. Another way maybe of putting that is, knowledge of God demands a certain kind of intellectual humility that says, left to my own resources and even the most expansive limits of my imagination that I do not have the resources to build a picture of God as he is. I don't have that within me. Um, I was going to save this for later, but I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time, so I might as well talk about it now. Um, I, I, I've grown also in my appreciation of Thomas Aquinas over time. There was a time when I would have been happy to kick Aquinas in the knee, and now I'm, you know, I'm changing my mind on that. So I'm off this, I don't know if that's healthy or not, but I'm re rethinking things all the time. One of the things that I do like about Aquinas in the first part of the Summa 
when he raises the question about the names of God. I mean, it's a big philosophical question that we really haven't even leaned into, but how can the infinite be named? I mean, that's just a bit like, how can that even be? Um, and this is one of the beautiful things that Aquinas claims, and I think it's very important. I mean, we organize the way in which we think about reality according to these kind of Aristotelian terms of genus and species, right? You have the genus of tree, and then there's, the, there's a maple, and there's an oak, and there's a, you know, whatever, an apple, pear. And we think in those terms so that we organize reality according to these various genii, right? Um, and, and Aquinas, I just love this, he says, God has no genus. There's no, there's no category that we think of, of like that's, that's, here's humans category here, here's the category of table, here's the, here's the category of forest, here's the category of ocean. I mean, whatever categories we have in our mind to help organize reality, God, God is not one of those. He, he, he isn't sort of caught in our understanding of being and reality. He is outside of all of that. All of that. So if we're going to know who he is truly and really, the point of this is God's going to have to speak. We can't build our Tower of Babel of knowledge to Him if we're going to come to some understanding of who He is, then God is going to have to reach down low to us and speak. So it requires a, a, a reverential bond of trust. Number two, it requires a, revel, a, a relational bond of self-giving. And this is an understanding of the character of God as self-giving, which is remarkable. Um, I say this to my students all the time, like whatever your view of God is, it's never big enough. Like, okay, let's, let's go think about like the, the famous Anselmian thing. He is, there's nothing greater that can be conceived than him. And then wherever, you, wherever the limits of your imagination can take you with that, more. And then more. And then infinitely go take a nap, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's more. Um, so we believe that this, you know, existence itself has given himself to humanity in, in, in relation. That, that is the remarkable achievement of the gospel. I mean, it's a rem when you think about it in its totality, it is, there's nothing other than a kind of intellectual and spiritual humility to stand before that and say it's unbelievable that the God whose word and spirit brought matter into being and organized it into the way in which we experience every day as we drive to work and come back home, that that God has spoken to us in his son and in those words has said, I love you. That's, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And then lastly, we believe that knowing God demands a revelational bond of God's own speech. So a reverential bond of trust, a relational bond of self-giving, and a re revelational bond of God's own speech. God has to speak for us to know who He is. And how does God do this? What's one of the primary ways that He does this in the Bible? He does it by giving Himself to His people in His name. He names Himself and allows people to name Him. Because we know this, don't we? This is another one of these sort of fat fascinating philosophical discussions of the 20th century. To name something is to begin to know it. It's to begin to understand it. Um, and we categorize ourselves in our naming. To name someone is to enter into relationship with that person. So God's naming of himself is God's giving of himself to his people in, in relation with him. Um, and, and we need to keep two things distinct here. And I think this is important. And some of for you this is basic, but this is important. When God gives himself to be known in his name, he gives himself truly and really. That knowledge corresponds to reality. And it's here, these are the two terms I wanted to hear. We apprehend that reality 
and it's adequate. It's adequate for us to understand and to know who God is. But it's never comprehensive. I think that's important. It's adequate. It's self-revealing. It's sufficient for us when it comes to our ordering our thoughts about who God is, but never comprehensive. This is where someone like Aquinas, I think, is really helpful. For all the naming that we do, to know God and His very essence is beyond the purview of humanity forever. Right, forever. That's, that's beyond our purview. So God gives Himself to His people to be named. God's name, and this is another, I think, significant point here, God's name is God's own self. In his self-revelation, this is why you're gonna. We'll see these texts over our next seven weeks together. But this is why you'll hear things like the name God giving His name, or His name enters the temple, or His name exits the temple, and it's almost as if the name of God is personified, like I can put a verb on it, and it's or give it an action. Now it's it's doing something, um, because God's name is God's very self in self-revelation. To give us His name um, is to give us. Uh, um, entree into knowing and relating to him in his very self. There's a reason in the Bible why people are so quick to ask when they have an encounter with the divine, what is your name? Or Jacob's wrestling match with God at the river Jabbok. You remember this scene, right? And we'll talk about this again a little bit because I've beat this text to death around here. But here's, here's the, you know, you know the, the little interaction. God changes his name from Jacob to Yisrael. And then Jacob, and it's a part of the, the text that we often forget, Jacob returns the favor. And by the way, what's your name? And you remember what God says? None of your business right now. All right, none of your business. And then moves on. And then we get to the burning bush, which we'll talk about in two weeks. In the burning bush, what happens? Um, Moses says, when I go to them and they say to me, I say to them, the God of your father sent me. See, that's, that's an explanation of a historical event that occurred with Israel's people. They know that they have a God. But to know that you have a God, see, this is that whole general special thing. To know that you have a God is not enough. To tell them that the God of your father sent you, that's not going to be sufficient. When they ask me, well, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? I mean, there are so many layers of thought that's going into that question. What is, when, when Moses asks, what is your name? Because Moses is in effect saying, are you in relation with us? Have you given yourself to us in your name? Because they're going to ask that question, and what's my answer going to be when they ask for your name? And God gives them a name. And then when we get to the end of Exodus, and now we have Moses at the sort of swan song of his career asking God to reveal his glory. And how does God reveal his glory? He comes down in Exodus 34 and gives Moses an exposition of his name. Doesn't do a lightning fireworks show. Could have done that. He says, you want to know who I am? You want to know my power and my glory? I'm going to tell you what my name means. Merciful, kind, loving, quick to forgive. I visit my loving kindness to the thousandth generation, but I also don't take sin lightly either. Um, so this, is, this whole series here is built around a very simple question. And I imagine it's a burning desire of most of us. And that is, we really want to know God. And we recognize that in knowing God and passionately pursuing who He is, that we'll begin to understand ourselves better too. To understand who we really are and what it means to relate to others in this world as the ways in which God and His kindness has related to us. Philippians 3.10 Oh, to know Him and the power of His resurrection. 
John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know the Father who has sent the Son. This is where eternal life is. Where is eternal life? In knowing, in knowledge. The book of Hosea, from beginning to end. You want to know why the northern kingdom comes, comes under such judgment? Because they do not know me. They die for lack of knowledge of me. And by the way, this is not merely an intellectual activity. This is an activity that's an activity of knowing that involves, involves our whole being, our souls, and our bodies. Because to know God is to know life. And that's what this series will be about. So Lord, help us as we sort of pursue this over the next few weeks together. That you would give us humility before the task. That you give us a sense of urgency and a sense of joy that you haven't left us to the recourses of our own imagination and intellectual gifts to build some sort of picture of who you are. But you have stooped low and in the pages of your word in the person of your son, you have spoken to us and told us who you are and how you are to be named. And let that open our hearts, Lord, to know and to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.